You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Five years have passed, five summers, with the length of five long winters. And again I hear these waters rolling from their mountain springs, with a sweet inland murmur. Once again do I behold these steep and lofty cliffs, which on a wild secluded scene impress thoughts of more deep seclusion, and connect the landscape with the quiet of the sky. The day is come when I again repose here, under this dark sycamore, and view these plots of cottage ground, these orchard tufts, which, at this season, with their unripe fruits, among the woods and copses lose themselves, nor with their green and simple hue disturb the wild green landscape. Once again I see these hedgerows, hardly hedgerows, little lines of sportive wood run wild, these pastoral farms, green to the very door, and wreaths of smoke sent up in silence from among the trees, with some uncertain notice, as might seem, of vagrant dwellers in the houseless woods, or of some hermit's cave, where by his fire the hermit sits alone. These beauteous forms, through a long absence, have not been to me as is a landscape to a blind man's eye, but oft in lonely rooms, amid the din of towns and cities, I have owed to them, in hours of weariness, sensations sweet, felt in the blood, and felt along the heart and passing even into my pure mind with tranquil restoration, feelings, too, of unremembered pleasure, such, perhaps, as have no slight or trivial influence on that best portion of a good man's life, his little, nameless, unremembered acts of kindness and of love. Nor less, I trust, to them I may have owed another gift of aspect more sublime, that blessed mood in which the burthen of the mystery, in which the heavy and the weary weight of all this unintelligible world is lightened, that serene and blessed mood in which the infections gently lead us on until the breath of this corporeal frame and even the motion of our human blood almost suspended, we are laid asleep in body and become a living soul while with an eye made quiet by the power of harmony and the deep power of joy, we see into the life of things. If this be but a vain belief, yet, oh, how oft, in darkness and amid the many shapes of joyless daylight, when the fretful stir and profitable and the fever of the world have hung upon the beatings of my heart, how oft, in spirit have I turned to thee, O Sylvan, why? Thou wanderer through the woods, how often has my spirit turned to thee? And now, with gleams of half-extinguished thought, with many recognitions dim and faint, 
and somewhat of a sad perplexity, the picture of the mind revives again. While here I stand, not only with a sense of present pleasure, but with pleasing thoughts that in this moment there is life and food for future years. And so I dare to hope, though change, no doubt, from what I was when first I came among these hills, when like a row I bounded o'er the mountains, by the sides of the deep rivers and the lonely streams, wherever nature led, more like a man flying from something that he dreads than one who sought the thing he loved. For nature then, the coarser pleasures of my boyish days and their glad animal movements all gone by, to me, was all in all. I cannot paint what then I was. The sounding cataract haunted me like a passion. The tall rock, the mountain and the deep and gloomy wood, their colors and their forms were then to me an appetite, a feeling and a love that had no need of a remoter charm. By thought supplied, not any interest unborrowed from the eye. That time has passed, and all its aching joys are now no more, and all its dizzy raptures. Not for this faint eye, nor mourn, nor murmur. Other gifts have followed. For such loss I would believe abundant recompense. For I have learned to look on nature, not as in the hour of thoughtless youth, but hearing oftentimes the still sad music of humanity, nor harsh nor grating, though of ample power to chasten and subdue. And I have felt a presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts, a sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused, whose dwelling is the light of setting suns, and the round ocean and the living air and the blue sky, and in the mind of man a motion and a spirit that impels all thinking things, all objects of all thought, and rolls through all things. Therefore am I still a lover of the meadows and the woods and mountains, and of all that we behold from this green earth, of all the mighty world, of eye and ear, both what they half create and what perceive, well pleased to recognize in nature and the language of the sense, the anchor of my purest thoughts, the nurse, the guide, the guardian of my heart and soul, of all my moral being. Nor perchance, if I were not thus taught, should I the more suffer my genial spirits to decay, for thou art with me here upon the banks of this fair river, thou my dearest friend, my dear, dear friend, and in thy voice I catch the language of my former heart, and read my former pleasures in the shooting lights of thy wild eyes. Oh, yet a little while may I behold in thee what I was once, my dear, dear sister. And this prayer I make, knowing that nature never did betray the heart that loved her, tis her privilege, through all the years of this our life, to lead from joy to joy, for she can so inform the mind that is within us, so impress with quietness and beauty, and so feed with lofty thoughts, that neither evil tongues, rash judgments, nor the sneers of selfish men, nor greetings where no kindness is, nor all the dreary intercourse of daily life shall e'er prevail against us, or disturb our cheerful faith, that all which we behold is full of blessings. Therefore, let the moon shine on thee in thy solitary walk. And let the misty mountain winds be free to blow against thee. 
And after years, when these wild ecstasies shall be matured into a sober pleasure, when thy mind shall be a mansion for all lovely forms, thy memory be as a dwelling place for all sweet sounds and harmonies. Oh, then, if solitude or fear or pain or grief should be thy portion, with what healing thoughts of tender joy wilt thou remember me? And these my exhortations. Nor perchance, if I should be where I no more can hear thy voice, nor catch from thy wild eyes these gleams of past existence, wilt thou then forget that on the banks of this delightful stream we stood together, and that I, so long a worshiper of nature, hither came unwearied in that service, rather say with warmer love, oh, with far deeper zeal of holier love. Nor wilt thou then forget that after many wanderings, many years of absence, these steep woods and lofty cliffs and this green pastoral landscape were to me more dear, both for themselves and for thy sake. Welcome all to episode 291 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Todd Pedler, professor of physics at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa. You might recognize my voice as one of the hosts of the Book of Nature podcast on this network and thus be confused about why I'm on this one. Wondering if my time on sabbatical has got me confused and I ended up joining the wrong Google Hangouts meeting. Uh, but in fact, I am supposed to be here. I'm here today because one of the three usual hosts of this, the flagship podcast of the Christian Humanist Radio Network, namely Nathan Gilmore, is otherwise engaged. So you're stuck with me. But lucky for you, dear listeners, and for me, I'm not alone, as you might have gathered from our opening reading. Joining me from Houston, Texas, where the sun is hot and where on an annual basis they get more rain than Seattle is Dr. David Grubbs, assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. How's it going way down south? Pretty good. Pretty good. And uh, I, I never knew that that was true about the rain. I guess I guess all the rest of the sun is the thing that makes Houston not Seattle. It, 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 it may be, and all the rain <laughs> makes it humid. So... Um, yeah, Seattle just rains all the time, but it rains little bits. Whereas when you get it, you get it. Well, no doubt. There is that. Also joining us today, uh, from what is very likely the second most famous Woodstock in the United States, namely Woodstock, Georgia, a town apparently named for the novel by Sir Walter Scott, is Dr. Michael Farmer. How are you? I'm good, Todd. I always learn things about my town when you're uh, when you're hosting. Uh, but I, I suspect it is not the second most famous. Woodstock, Illinois, is where they filmed the movie Groundhog Day. Oh, so I, yeah. I think I think Woodstock, Illinois, probably beats us out. That 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 may well be true. That may well be true. Is hot is hot Atlanta uh, hot at this point in time? No, actually, the weather's about perfect. It was like 75 degrees today and kind of pleasantly breezy. Mild Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Todd, there's a sign in the airport now when you come into Atlanta that says, nobody calls it Hotlanta. <laughs> Except people. <laughs> well, I, I, I will tell you, the very first experience I ever had uh, with, with Atlanta was landing at the airport. Um, back then, they rolled up the you know, the staircase to the airplane, the airplane. Um, I was in seventh grade. 
um, going to a National History Day, you know, national, the, the, the national meeting or whatever in Washington, D.C., and we had to fly through Atlanta. And I walked out that door and I felt like I'd just been hit by a, a hot ton of bricks. I mean, you, you have described Atlanta in the summer. Oh, my goodness. It was it was like June, and you know we we flown from Seattle, and and you know Seattle was I don't know fifty or something like that, yeah. <laughs> and it, it was just this whack right in the face, and I just I I, I it was awful. <laughs> it's oppressive, yeah. It was it was pretty crazy. Around, around about late July, the internet or the interstate starts to melt. <laughs> uh, that 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 wouldn't surprise me in the least. Yeah, wouldn't surprise me in the least. Oh, my goodness. Well, enough about the weather. Uh, today, as you might have gleaned from our opening recitation, if you've got a good memory for the works of William Wordsworth, our topic is what is perhaps one of his best-known poems. Uh, lines composed a few miles above Tintern Abbey, uh, subtitled on revisiting the banks of the Wye during a tour, or simply Tintern Abbey for short. It's a poem that explores the themes of memory and loss, uh, beauty and emptiness, it's a poem that, um, as I thought about the things we might explore in a Christian Humanist podcast episode that I've been invited to host in the midst of this time of COVID-19 and all the attendant challenges and whatnot, it seemed to jump out at me as, immediately as something worth exploring. And I wouldn't dream of doing this without two of my good friends on this network, uh, David and Michael. So it's a great pleasure to be able to reflect on this poem and its themes with these two whose engagement with literary and philosophical matters I have long appreciated. So without further ado. Well, and Todd, we, we appreciate not only your being willing to fill in for Nathan, but actually hosting the episode, uh, which, which you know, is not a not an exactly an easy thing to do. So we really do appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, my pleasure. And uh, as, as is always the case, uh, you guys will talk more than I, so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, uh, David, as the network's resident historian, biographer of all trades, um, <laughs> can we have a sketch of Wordsworth's life, his work in a circle? And I do know uh, we've done an episode, you have done an episode, a uh, Wordsworth episode on intimations of immortality, I believe, but that was before this podcast got to triple digits. Uh, number 96, I looked it up. So 2013 nice. is the last time that Wordsworth was the subject of a, of, of a show. So uh, what you got for us? Um, life and works of Wordsworth. Well, this is one of his uh, poems written for lyrical ballads in uh, 1798. So mm, the later developments of his life, uh, changes of perspective, shifting relationships, um, those kinds of things. Um, th those are those are yet in the future. Um, intim um, intimations of immortality in the future. Uh, he was born in 1770, so the William Wordsworth that we're looking at in this poem uh, is about 28 years old. Ouch! Right? <laughs> 28 years old, recalling <laughs> being 23 years old. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, put Stick that in your pipe and smoke it. Hey, no, but consider this, David. I was 28 when we recorded our last episode on Williams Wordsworth. So while at 28 he wrote Censor and Abbey, I managed to be one third of an episode about a different poem of his. Very impressive. <laughs> I, I think I was 29. Yeah, you, you two are not so unlike. Or something. 
<laughs> no, I was 29. I'm sorry, I miscalculated. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, what a difference a year makes, huh? Um, important things. Uh, he grew up in the Lake District of England, which is one of the most uh, beautiful places on an island of beautiful places. Uh, and uh, ever, basically for the rest of his life, um, uh, the the that early um, ex, uh, that that early growing up, rearing um, in in kind of wild and rural agrarian landscapes of uh, hills and lakes and fields and all the rest of it, um, shaped what he pays attention to, all right? Um, also, mm-hmm. um, his sister Dorothy, who was born a year after him, and who he was, uh, seems to have been his, uh, kind of his sidekick sibling. Um, he had He had more siblings than that, but... Um, as far as you know, it was only the two of them. Um, uh, Dorothy would often go on those walks, uh, walks in the in in the country and in the wild. So um, that's that's topical for this poem. Um, setting scenes for the twenty-three-year-old that this twenty-eight-year-old is recalling, uh, he had just gotten back um, uh, in uh, seventeen ninety-three from. Uh, some time over a year, uh, might have been a couple of years, spent in France uh, after the French Revolution. Well, during the French Revolution, after the French Revolution. Anyway, after the fall of the monarchy, he's in revolutionary France um, and uh, is enamored of the sorts of things that are happening there in terms of... Um, you know the the leveling of of society and democracy and stuff like that um uh forms a relationship with french woman uh from which a daughter results uh but in 1793 uh comes the well what had been revving up for a little while but 1793 uh the reign of terror and uh, he gets out of Dodge, uh, comes back to England, and is uh, thoroughly disillusioned um, uh, with the revolution as a result. So that um, that 23-year-old who seems to be uh, uh, recalled as one who is um, turning to the the wilderness around Tintern Abbey as a as a kind of sanctuary in his flight back to nature. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's some important context for what he's fleeing from. Uh, the lyrical ballads in 1798 was a uh, collection of poems uh, that he wrote in collaboration with uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Um, he Wordsworth wrote many, many, many more of them than did Coleridge. If I remember rightly, the, the 1798 edition. Um, had 20-some-odd poems, four of which were by Coleridge. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, it's mostly Wordsworth. A collaboration. You know. A collaboration. And a very sure. important um, a very important sort of introductory essay. Uh, Although, David, that introductory essay does not come from the 1798 edition. It's from a later edition. Really? Okay, yeah, I knew that. Now that now that I'm thinking, just kind of like, what is it? What does it talk about? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Was there laudanum involved in that essay? 
I, I don't know that there's laudanum involved in the essay directly. <laughs> um, but yeah, if you read the essay, he's very clearly explaining to an audience what their intention was uh, in the in the publication of poems that had already happened in the past. So so yeah, yeah, you're right. But the thought <laughs> behind it, um, the essay explains some of their ideas. Um, behind this collection of poems and it had a lot to do with uh, a greater freedom of form a greater freedom of language um, uh, a more I guess personal truth basically all of the things that that coming through high school and into college as an undergraduate you thought poetry was is the kind this kind of stuff well, yeah, I mean, it's it's really too bad Nathan's not here because anytime I make a statement about art, he dismisses it as being just romanticism or post-romanticism. <laughs> yeah, I, so this is important stuff, even if that essay hadn't been written yet. Um, it seems that Wordsworth and Coleridge and Sister Dorothy um, had already been having some of these ideas um, about what poetry is and does. Um, and even though the they hadn't those that that manifesto hadn't made its way into prose yet um the poems that were shaped by that agenda uh were out and uh uh affecting the the re the, the readerly populace hmm. so that is the guy who's wandering around um in the hills above the ruins of tintern abbey uh, what other tidbits uh, might be might be worth mentioning that would illumine things in this poem? Well, I, I would point out that Tenser Abbey, as you can tell by the date he gives, is the last poem written for lyrical ballads. It's actually written the same year it's published, hmm. and uh, he he very uh, quickly throws it into the into the collection and and i don't know if it's the most famous poem from that collection because there's a lot of famous poems in there but it is yeah. certainly as todd pointed out at the beginning one that people who like wordsworth certainly know mm -hmm. uh the other thing i would point out about wordsworth is that he is kind of a prime example of a poet who loses his talent as he gets older so mm -hmm. almost everything we love from wordsworth is composed before 1810 uh, so we really have him at the full flush of his talents here in Tintern Abbey. And I don't know that I would say it's all downhill from here because Ode to Immortality is written after this. But certainly there is a Wordsworth long outlives what most people agree is his talent. Maybe that's the best way to put it. Uh, and, and so he, he kind of, as Byron becomes uh, a, a kind of symbol of a certain sort of poet, so does Wordsworth. Wordsworth becomes the symbol of a poet who did all his best work and then continued to work. Mm. Uh, he's, in some ways, you might think of him as the Rolling Stones of uh, of nineteenth century <laughs> poetry, because because he's around for a long, long time after he does essential work, and yeah. uh, that that that's kind of melancholy in its way, don't you think? Hmm. Well, sort of what. Uh... Bill Watterson and Gary Larson retired to avoid. That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because I mean, I, I think it's undeniable that for most people, I won't say it happens only when you're young because there's a lot of, there's a lot of poets who do their best work when they're older. But I think for most people, there is a, a kind of 
range of time when you're capable of doing your very best work. And unfortunately for Wordsworth, that happened very early in his career. Um, so, bummer. Yeah. Well, yeah. Now, and did he write all the way? Because he died in like 1850, right? Yeah, he lives for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting in 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 the sciences. We often say the same sort of thing. That well, yeah, I've heard mathematicians are no good after they're 35. Right? You know, 35 is about it. <laughs> I, and you know, and and to what degree do we? chalk that up to just the energy that one has sort of at the outset of adulthood um, yeah. and life yeah <laughs> life eventually gets you down mrs brown you know um well i mean it's interesting he's the only major romantic who lives that long byron and mm. shelley and keats all famously die when they're young i don't think True. coleridge lived as long as as wordsworth did so in some ways, I think his reputation suffers a little bit because he was more successful as a human being than those guys were. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, almost everybody is more successful as a human being than Lord Byron. And, uh, and, and <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty low bar you've set there. <laughs> but the other thing about Wordsworth and Coleridge, for that matter, is as they get older, they get more orthodox in their religious views. Mm. So, I mean, you read the Wordsworth of the late 18th century. And I mean, he's, he's a mystic and yeah. he becomes much more standard issue church of England moving forward. And hmm. you know, whether that's, it's, it's probably a bad thing for his poetry. I would, I would suggest it's probably a good thing for his, the condition of his immortal soul. Uh, but you know, probably theology's gain yeah. is literature's loss in some, in some ways. Certainly hmm. that's true of Coleridge. Yeah. I wonder. This is this is just my off-the-cuff armchair speculation. Uh, you talking about mathematicians and poets? Uh, both of those are pioneers of conceptualization and vision and expression within their fields. It's coming up with new ways of seeing and new ways of articulating what is seen. Um, and. You can't just keep inventing the way that you see and the way that you express yourself. Like, like right. psychologically, that uh, that moment in, in in your life is is a rather narrow one. You you get a vision and a way to express it, um, and once you're there, you you start kind of exploring the world through that vision and with that way of expression, which means. Um, there will be this time in which it is, you know, plastic, uh, in which you are exploring. Um, but, you know, the brilliant person will finally settle on the thing that satisfies them. But it, yeah. but it means that what follows isn't necessarily going to have that same zest and freshness. But that's, you know, uh, psychologically, I think that's maybe a sign of health. <laughs> Yeah, because <laughs> I I don't want to be having radical worldview and expression shifts every ten years of my life. <laughs> but well, here here David I think is where it helps to not be a genius. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which is a, a concept that's really important to the romantics is the kind of individual genius. This is what Nathan's always complaining yeah. about when I when I express my aesthetic <laughs> views. But genius burns out. Those of us who are just kind of mediocre and steady can can you know, perhaps count on doing mediocre but steady work for decades. But 
people who who kind of flower in this uh, in this moment of genius, I, I, I suspect it ends up being just that a moment. I, I'm sure I'm sure that there are oh there are obviously exceptions to that you know sure um, but but yeah the rule is it's that's a, that's pretty fair I suspect how many um, how many musicians because I think it's easy for us to think of musicians how many musicians do their best work in their 60s or 70s not that many uh, Mavis Staples is doing pretty well she's yeah, eight, yeah. 80 now that's, that's true she, she's uh, she's she's still really good. And a yeah. lot of people kind of come at, at late career with one really great album, but usually it comes at the end of decades of mediocrity. Hmm. Unless you're Johnny Cash. No. Oh, are you kidding me, no. David? No. <laughs> Have you ever listened to 1980s Johnny Cash? Uh, yes. Because, I mean, Cash <laughs> is like a prime example of that. Because he, he, he goes through this horrible dark period, and then Rick Rubin resurrects his career uh, with those American Recordings albums in the 90s and early 2000s. Okay. I don't want to make this an episode about uh, country music, since we have City of Man's uh, episodes. <laughs> no, I'm just thinking of how old Johnny Cash has a power, and young Johnny Cash has a power, but they are not the same power. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But there's sure. this period in the middle where he doesn't know what he's doing mm. before he gets to that. Yeah, and and, and I, I think that's actually a, a prime example of what we're, what I'm talking about. I'm not sure poets go through that. I, I, I'm afraid that when poets lose it, they mm. lose it. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. It, I wonder. I mean, I haven't thought enough about you know other long lived uh, poets like you know well T. S. Eliot, for instance. I I don't know. Elliot uh, writes his last poem of any note in 1945, and he dies yeah. two decades later. You know, now, sure now, I enough, mean, the four sure quartets enough. are really incredible works, and they're not the yep. works of a young man. So right. he's got yeah. a 30-year career of really essential yeah. poetry, but yeah. he outlives his poetry to be sure, and I think he would agree yeah. with that. Hmm. Hmm. Well, good. Um, let I, let's go a little bit further um just sort of exploring wordsworth and 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 his influence um michael since you're the americanist uh one who's interested lie also broadly in existentialism i'm curious if you can tell us of the paths that may lead from the romantics like wordsworth to the american scene um and if there's any connecting threads between wordsworth and his movement and perhaps the existentialists that are somewhat later yeah, I, I, I think I can do that. And I, I think you're right to notice that connection. And mm -hmm. in, in fact, I think what Gilmore is recognizing as my post-romanticism is actually a product of my existentialism. So <laughs> I'm going to try to make the connections here. The big picture is that both of those movements elevate subjective individual reaction above universal reason. Uh, romanticism is, I don't want to oversimplify, but let's say almost exclusively a reaction to the 18th century enlightenment. So mm -hmm. uh, romanticism elevates the local, the specific, the emotional over the universal, the cosmopolitan and the rational. Existentialism comes in reaction to a 19th century revival of enlightenment thought. And, and in fact, I've, I can't remember what philosopher says this, but I have heard that 
uh, really romanticism is just a blip that the enlightenment continues from the 18th century to the late 19th century. And romanticism is just kind of a distraction, a brief distraction. I think literary people are less likely to say that just because romanticism is so important in literary history, much more important than it is in philosophical history, I think. Mm -hmm. The big difference between romanticism and existentialism, as I see it, is that the is that romanticism tends to be hopeful and existentialism tends to be pessimistic. Uh, existentialism emphasizes individual emotions like anxiety and despair, which are certainly things you sometimes see in romanticism, especially in the so-called dark romantics and people mm -hmm. like Hawthorne and Melville. But mm -hmm. traditional romanticism tends to see the world as a place full of wonder and beauty, and certainly you get that here in Tintern Abbey. Let me put it another way. Enlightenment thought assumes that we can control the world through science and reason and all that other stuff. Romanticism says we can't control the world, and hey, that's a pretty good thing. Existentialism says we can't control the world, and it might be disastrous because we keep trying to anyway. The easiest way to make the historical connection, that's the kind of ideological connection. The, the, biggest, the easiest way to make the historical connection is Ralph Waldo Emerson. Emerson meets Wordsworth in 1835 on a trip to England, and he picks up on some of the more mystical aspects of Wordsworth's relationship with nature in essays like The Oversoul. Emerson's biggest fan is not Thoreau, not Walt Whitman, um, but Friedrich Nietzsche. And Nietzsche mm -hmm. carried copies of Emerson's books everywhere he went for his entire life. And some of his aphorisms are basically just translations of Emerson's aphorisms. And when I learned that, it really blew my mind. It really helped me understand Emerson in a new way. Because you think of Emerson, I think, through the lens of Thoreau and Whitman, you think of him as this kind of peace-loving, hippy-dippy guy. <laughs> and you think of Nietzsche as an atom bomb, you know, like the, the Antichrist. He calls himself the Antichrist. Yeah. So, so to understand how much of Nietzsche comes through Emerson really makes you rethink maybe not Nietzsche, but, but certainly Emerson. Hmm. Um, and so I, I think he's the connection because Nietzsche is hugely important for every existentialist who follows him. And that makes Emerson important, too, even though very few uh, post-Nietzsche existentialists engage with Emerson in a meaningful way. Uh, he's still the kind of background of their thought just because he's so important for Nietzsche. So I, I, I think that's the, that's, those are the two ways I would connect it, the kind of ideological connection through uh -huh. subjectivism and the historical connection through Emerson. Well, that that's fascinating um, to me. Just just to, to see the links in the chain there, because um, I, I I just I had a sense, you know, because there's similarities, and obviously I'm not the experts that you all are, um, but just in in you know the reading and largely it's dipping about. I've read a fair bit of Nietzsche, but um, you know my 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 sort of mid-century American. Uh, experience of of the Emersons and 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 uh, Whitmans and whatnot is is kind of scant. So, um, but I feel like there's I, I just felt like there was something going on there. So I guess maybe there was. There there is yeah. I I, I really think of the existentialist as being the heirs to the romantics. Um, in, yeah. in a century where there's not a lot of heirs to the romantics, you know, I mean you've you've got you, you've got this this kind of Victorian. Uh, rationalism, you've got British and German idealism, which has something in common with romanticism. Um, and then you've got modernism. And, and I mean, famously, T.S. Eliot hated the romantics. 
So I, I think the existentialists are, are kind of carrying the torch for the romantics, although they're doing it in a profoundly different way. They're doing it after, uh, after the world has been destroyed, essentially, by World War I. So mm -hmm. I, I, but I, I do think that there, there's a real heritage there that you were right to pick up on. Yeah. But just there are times when, you know, the, the, the sort of um, what I what I remember of my reading of, of many of the existentialists is this, you know, the 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 experience, the experience right. is the thing. Right. And so much of you name the romantic, but, you know, so much of what you see there is is also a celebration of that experience, although it may have a different flavor, as you say. O over and against that kind of universalism that you find in the Enlightenment. Yeah. Reason with a capital R. The, the romantics hate that stuff. So, hmm. To the point where, the, the, at their worst, you know, they're completely irrationalist. But I, I think mm -hmm. at their best, they find a way to, um, to hold on to what's good about small r reason without denying all the human aspects of existence that aren't entirely logical. Sure. Cool. That's awesome. Um, well, since this is a poem-centric uh, episode, we better get to the poem, right? Um, <laughs> so, uh, David, I, I'm sure we would all love, and I'm, I'm sure you in particular would love the setting of this poem to be the beautiful ruins of the medieval Tintern Abbey. Yeah. But that's not the setting. What is the setting? And why do you think, uh, or do you think, there's a particular reason that the Abbey is called out if the setting is not the Abbey itself? Is it simply geography? Well, it's not not geography. <laughs> sure. Um, so, I, I, I look at thinking about your question, looking at the poem, uh, the first answer that I would... Uh, that I would give is the title lines composed a few miles above Tintern Abbey. Uh, so he's not actually down, down amidst the beautiful, still beautiful, still standing, lovely ruins of Tintern Abbey um, in uh, Monmouthshire in Wales. Uh, so uh, he's, he's in the hills above it, which is, is interesting too because uh, Tintern Abbey was uh, before Wordsworth's time and continued to be after Wordsworth's time uh, a relatively common uh, it, it, subject of landscapes, uh, landscape drawings, landscape paintings, um, mentioned in books of travels. There's other poetry uh, about uh, Tintern Abbey itself. So I wonder the degree to which uh, when, um, when Wordsworth was, was writing this and composing this title, which you could read the poem and, you know, it could just be like on the banks of the River Wye or whatever. <laughs> uh, and, and you would understand it perfectly well. But since he's mentioning being in the hills above Tintern Abbey, you know, I wonder the degree to which he, he thinks his reader might have seen one of these images of this abbey and so actually be able to visually insert Wordsworth onto that hill looking back. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, 
So the Abbey itself, uh, it was dissolved during, um, well, during uh, Henry's dissolution of the monasteries. So it was a monastery, um, medieval monastery, and then uh, it ceases to be and, is, and is, uh, w was left to become a ruin. If you look at the other art that's produced about Tintern Abbey, the ruin is the center of the focus. Uh, and in many of them, for that reason, it's either taken from in the midst of the ruins, the ruins are in close-up, or the ruins are the center of the landscape, right? Um, the theme of such art is this this kind of contemplation of the of the decayed works of, of, of men, right? Um, this uh, very romantic, still very romantic, uh, contemplation of ruins and the the melancholy, uh, pensive associations of of that, um, and those are things that Wordsworth evokes with his title and then pays almost n no attention to. He's not interested in the decayed works of humanity. He's interested in vital nature. And while he is going to engage in a meditation on times past and the nostalgia that accompanies that, it is not going to be that of the past of the landscape, but of his own past. Right? Um, he, this is a view from the hilltop, uh, looking down at the valley, not a, not a view from the banks of the Wye up towards the hills. Um, that's the one that many of the paintings and sketches and whatnot assume, in which Tintern Abbey is big, foreground, and important. But looking from the hills, the buildings are small, you know, and he talks about seeing um, signs of human habitation in the wilderness around him, but they are uh, little signs, smoke through the trees, um, the lines of hedges, things like that. Uh, from the hilltop, nature is big and human human habitation is small. Uh, so I don't I'm not, I'm not reading his mind, but when you ask me to focus on the abbey that isn't there, those are the kinds of things uh, that I, I would I would pitch as an answer to your question. What does the absence of the Abbey mean? <laughs> yeah, the, the, the smallness of humanity in, in relationship to nature is important because one of the big aesthetic ideas kicking around at the end of the 18th century is this notion of sublimity, which, I mean, it goes back to the ancient Greeks, but uh, certainly Immanuel Kant and Edmund Burke both pick up on it. And the difference between sublimity and beauty is that sublimity is kind of unpleasant in its way. It's, it's terrifying. It makes you feel dwarfed and in danger. And this is kind of why people like horror movies, I think. Uh, but I, you, you definitely get some of that here at the beginning of Tintern Abbey. This, this, these steep and lofty cliffs that on a wild, secluded scene impress thoughts of more deep seclusion. So it's not just that nature is beautiful. It's not just that nature speaks kindly to us. It's that nature is bigger and more powerful than us, and we feel that. And I, I think the kind of hmm. ghost of the ruins of Tintern Abbey suggests that. 
it's not just that they're ruins it's that there there's only a trace of them in the poem right they're only mm -hmm. there in the title you you never actually even see them so yeah. even aside from being ruins they're even smaller than that mm -hmm. yeah well and and his focus uh, you know so so often returns again to statements of beauty um and it's beauty of nature uh, that he's speaking of. And so in some respects, I do wonder whether the Abbey is there to, to contrast. I mean, but, but, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe the whole thing is that it's in the title and that's all. And there's a reason that is not in the title. You know, it is only in the title and, and his reflections here are certainly on the natural world yeah. as opposed to that, uh, well, it's still here. It's still beautiful in a different way. You know, we'll talk about that. How his how his perspective has changed between five years ago and today. Um, but nature is still, you know, in view, and the abbey just doesn't even, you know, the abbey is known to be decayed, and you know, by that, it's still five hundred years decayed. Yeah, <laughs> or six hundred right. years decayed at this time. Th so thanks, the Henry abbey. VIII. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know um i like your use of the word opposed todd uh because it's not just that he's left tintern abbey out it's that tintern abbey was a common subject of artistic uh contemplation and yeah the the the, the gaze of this poem is actively averted what from what for many artistic viewers before and after was the central feature of that landscape. Yeah. He is pointedly not looking at the thing that everyone else is looking at. He point, he wants us to look elsewhere and see something else mm -hmm. and experience something mm -hmm. else. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's like naming a poem after the St. Louis arch and then only talking about the river. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 other, the other thing is that there's a kind of decay of faith going on here, right? Wordsworth, mm -hmm. Wordsworth has chosen another religion. And so institutional Christianity is ruinous and not really there. And what matters instead is the kind of vague na nature worship you get. <coughs> the vague nature worship you get um, in kind of hinted at in this poem. And yeah. you, you think of... Um, you think of the famous line from the world is too much with us. Good God, I'd rather be a pagan suckled in a creed outworn. Yeah. In, in some ways, I think he's embracing that here. He's becoming a pagan suckled in a creed that, um, well, we might think it's outworn, but apparently it still holds some viability for Wordsworth, at least for the time being. Huh. Interesting. I wonder, do, 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 are either of you familiar with this work? Uh, uh, I've seen in reference to this poem by uh, an author by the name of William Gilpin, Observations on the River Y. I don't know that and, one, no. Okay. Um, it's, um, he, he spends a lot of time talking about uh, just just the natural environs around, and it's it's a little bit ahead of... I'm trying to remember where I saw the date. Yeah, 1782. You. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, 15 years earlier or so, and um, it's curious to me um, whether whether that was a work that might you know have been something Wordsworth was familiar with or or what have you. But it 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 backs up your point, Michael. I believe that 
you know, the the Y River Valley itself was a place that was celebrated and 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 uh, valued. Um, it's certainly, Wordsworth is going on a tour, as right. it were, of of the uh, of the of the valley. Yeah, you know, he composed it mostly in his head too. Huh. He he had written this while on the tour, while while out walking. He wrote a great deal of this poem in his wow. head, which is amazing. Yeah, lordy. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we got uh, the 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 nature of the word above out of the way. Uh, it was not uh, him borrowing one of the Montgolfier brothers' uh, balloons and <laughs> a, few, a few miles above uh, Tender Abbey, um, but above in the sense of a river uh, and what have you. Um, all right, time to focus in a little bit on on the poetry itself. So five years have passed. Um, the uh, this is a place the narrator uh, had known, and now he's back. So time and memory are playing a big role in this. What is the role that you see um, of of memory here? What, and he's he's there and back again, if you will. Um, what's with that? How does that play in this uh, in this poem? Well, memory is actually really central to Wordsworth's mm -hmm. entire aesthetic project. David, we, we talked briefly yeah. about this essay that, that opens later editions of Lyrical Ballads. And one of the famous statements in that essay, which really we should do a whole episode on sometime because yeah. I really like that essay and I'm sure Nathan would like to argue with me about it. <laughs> <laughs> but he says, he, he famously says, poetry is the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. And this is the part everybody knows from that essay, the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. What everybody misses out on is the second part of that sentence. It takes its origin from emotion recollected in tranquility. So a lot of really dreadful poetry has been written by people uh, who are expressing the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. We've all heard that poetry from students. Uh, we've all probably written that poetry. Um, but you have to remember that you're not just like putting your feelings onto paper. You're recollecting that spontaneous overflow. You're using your memory to approach it. And then you're putting it down in an order that makes sense. So one of the things that surprises some people, if they, if they read that preface before they read Wordsworth, they might be surprised at how staid it is. I mean, there's not a lot of emotional expression in Wordsworth compared to um, Sylvia Plath or somebody like that. And just so everybody knows, I'm not calling Sylvia Plath dreadful poetry. She's wonderful. And I think she's probably actually doing something very similar to what Wordsworth is doing in terms of remembering these powerful feelings. His his work is very controlled, um, and, and that can only happen because of the memory. So uh, memory is very important to him, and it's important to this poem, because in some ways, this poem is about remembering times that Wordsworth has previously been comforted by nature. So it's not exactly about taking present comfort in nature. It's about remembering the way that he once took comfort in na uh, nature. He says, uh, let's see. These beauteous forms, through a long absence, that's the recollected and tranquility, have not been to me as is a landscape to a blind man's eye, but oft in lonely rooms amid the den of towns and cities I have owed to them in hours of weariness sensation sweet. So you get the notion that 
for many years, for the five years since he's last visited here, he uh, he has taken comfort in the things he's seen there. And that's an idea that shows up other places in Wordsworth poetry, most most famously in um, in the poem Daffodils, which you might know as I Wandered Lonely as a Crowd, as a Cloud, excuse me, Lonely as a Crowd doesn't mm-hmm. make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> uh, he, he gets at that same idea, this notion that nature fills you up when you're in it, and then you can live off the stores of that in terms of your memory of nature later, even when um, even when things are much more difficult for you. Uh, the other thing that recollection does is it brings him, in, in his words, feelings too of unremembered pleasure. So it's not just that you remember the positive feelings you felt, it's that you somehow, in using your recollection, can bring forth positive feelings that you didn't feel at the time that memory makes richer and deeper. And along with that, memory gives you promise of future comfort. He says, in this moment, there is life and food for future years. So all of this stuff mixes together. Your, your experience of nature is not just about being in nature. It's about the the human process of adding memory to that experience and thus giving meaning and comfort and beauty to your world. So that that's one part of it, this memory of nature. The other part of mm-hmm. it is that Wordsworth himself has changed drastically, maybe, from the last time he saw this world. So he's coming back and he's remembering who he used to be and he's trying to uh, take stock of his current self. And, and to me, that's that's the great thing that nostalgia does for you, is it allows you to kind of make connections with who you used to be and who you are now. Um, and, and so that's that's something he's kind of working through here in, uh, in Tintern Abbey as well. Is, um, I mean, so these two visits to the River Valley do bracket at least some of the events of the French Revolution, etc. Yeah. Um, and was this this relationship he had? Did that happen between these two dates? Do we know? No, it happened just before them. So his his illegitimate child with that woman from France. That's that child. It's a daughter. She is born in nineteen in seventeen ninety two, not nineteen seventy two. Um, <laughs> But the French Revolution yeah. and the Reign of Terror meant that he couldn't visit them. Yeah. And he wouldn't actually okay. see them again until 1802. Holy crap. So okay. you can imagine <laughs> how cut off from his own past he might have felt. I mean, yeah, aside sure. from, I don't know, I don't know much about Wordsworth's biography. So I don't know if he felt shame about fathering this child out of wedlock. Um, mm. But even if he didn't, he must have felt guilty that he couldn't be there for the child and and be there for this woman and and it must make him kind of question who he is which besides that is something we all do in our 20s anyway you know 28 is just old enough to start feeling old (laughs) (laughs) yeah especially when uh a a whole view of life society how humans should relate to human uh that he had uh, given himself wholly to uh, had, you know, literally gone up in flames. Uh, you know, it's it's not just sort of remembering my younger self, but also seeing, and this, this is what I gave myself to. This is what I mm-hmm. saw as ultimate. Um, 
in some ways that that uh, I love I love your kind of bringing up the the unremembered pleasure. Um, you know, maybe 1793 Wordsworth wasn't experiencing these hills as directly in the very moment that he was in them because he was carrying too much of, you know, of of uh, of 1792 and 1791 with him. <laughs> well, and, and he, he almost says that, David. He says that when he was younger, he fled into nature, fleeing something else instead of going to nature yeah. for its own purpose. For nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, I mean, just imagine, none of us have to imagine it because we've all been there. Just, just remember what it was like to be in your late 20s and, and remembering what it was to be in your early 20s. Like, you feel like a different person. Um, you're you're a, yeah. you're ashamed in some ways. In some ways, you wish you could return to that. I mean, these are these are the very complicated, uh, the complicated set of emotions that go into the way we think about our future selves. And and Wordsworth is dealing with that here, and he's mixing it with with our very complicated feelings about the natural world, hmm. or maybe maybe our more simple feelings about the natural world, since. Um, since Wordsworth seems to be holding nature out as a as a realm that can protect us in some ways from mm-hmm. the changes that are going on in ourselves. Hmm. True enough. Well, that's a decent segue to um, to a question for David, uh, just concerning the, the the places where he does wax long and eloquent um, about nature. Uh, there are some places where there's an opposition of that natural beauty to uh, human-created things. Um, This isn't a time really yet in 1798 when the south of Wales was really starting to become, you know, heavily industrialized with um, the ironworks and the coal mining that characterized the south of Wales um, uh, somewhat later than this time, but it would be by the time he was 18, you know, by, by the time of his death in 1850. Um, what do you see him doing um, with regard to calling out that opposition or making, at least making use of it? Yeah. He's got this uh, reference in, in the very opening um, movement, stanza, section, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> Paragraph, <whatever> it <laughs> in, in the opening of the poem, uh, he has some of his few recognitions of uh, the presence of human-made things in the landscape. Uh, line 11, uh, starting at line 11, uh, these plots of cottage ground, uh, these orchard tufts, which uh, at the season with their upright fruits are clad in green hue, um, hedgerows, hardly hedgerows, little lines of sportive wood run wild, but that's not what a hedgerow is, right? A hedgerow is not a little line of sportive wood run wild. <laughs> it's, it's trees and shrubs intentionally planted in rows in order to defend property boundaries. Um, and then wreaths of smoke sent up in silence from among the trees, marking the pastoral farms in this area, which uh, he then 
uh, which which seem like they might be those of vagrant dwellers in houseless woods. But the whole point is that they aren't houseless woods. <laughs> the trees might be taller than these farm buildings, but the farm buildings are there. Um, it might look like a wild landscape, but it's not. Right. Because hmm. um, I read that the opposite way, David. I read, I read that as saying that even the habitations kind of belong to nature. The hedgerows that are hardly hedgerows. Yeah. Yes. I mean the the way that he describes them. Yes, but you know a hedgerow is a hedgerow because somebody put it there. Um, it may be it may be grown up, but it is you know it's still, it's not a forest. Right. It's right. You know, gardens are not nature. Gardens are not nature. Um, they partake in nature. There's still nature there, but it is nature tamed and turned to human use. Um, it is closer to nature than industry is, but it is still um, an imposition of an order that nature left to herself would not create. Um but you see the way that he imaginatively blends these signs of human order, human ordering, of human um, uh, human u- utilization of nature. He's uh, masking it poetically. Uh, part of that may be just a flight of imagination. We've already talked about how younger younger Wordsworth was uh, came, came to this wilderness as if fleeing from something and while on one hand the reign of terror sounds like a really good thing to be fleeing from uh, his description of life in towns and cities also seems like something that's good to good to run from too uh, line 26 where often in lonely rooms and mid the din of towns and cities, he is imagining these places. But that those those references, the din of towns and cities, but also lonely rooms. He's in a place where he is surrounded by people and lonely. Um, you know, I, I, I loved your reference to daffodils earlier, Michael, that I wandered lonely as a cloud. Um, my students in composition, they always write a poetry paper, and I usually get about half a dozen I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud papers. That poem is so much better than its reputation would lead you to believe. Yes. Like, that that's a famously squishy opening line. Yes. But, they, but it's, it's really a great poem. They are all surprised to find out that the whole point of the poem is that he doesn't feel lonely. Yeah. <laughs> You know, he he wandered lonely in the way that a cloud wanders lonely. And how is that? Well, it's like this. Um, So this being in nature is being in company. Being in the city, in the town, amidst the din, that's, that's what it is to be lonely and disconnected. Right? So maybe, maybe industrialization, um, the growth of, uh, the growth of towns, and the industries that feed the town and that the town feeds, um, maybe those had not yet spilled out into this countryside. Um, but one of the reasons why he's out here is because of the pressures that will that will breed those things. Um, it will it will later come to uh, to affect that landscape. Um, I wonder the the degree to which poems like poems like this. Um, 
were some of the the inspiration for maybe not in the you know later later in the 19th century uh but at the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century when there started to be more attention to returning places in England to the wild um the the, mm. the role that literature played in uh in in those in those kinds of movements to what degree uh people realized uh literature helped people understand what they lost when they did the things they did to the landscape yeah that's interesting you you almost had me wanting to throw a curveball into the mix here, but we're uh, <laughs> we're at fifty we're at fifty five minutes. Oh, there's no baseball though right now, so no. maybe a curveball is appropriate. Um, I'm curious about the turn um, that that brings him into this. Uh, I don't want to call it an elegy, but you know this this reflection on what. Um, and this was going to be one of the passages I bring up, so I guess I'll just throw it in here now. Um, you know, there is this statement that he says, uh, where have I, where have I, I've lost it, I've lost it. He's disturbed, a presence, he's felt a presence that disturbs me with the joy. This is 9495, lines 9495. I felt a presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts, a sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused. And he goes on many lines, just uh, reflecting on this thing that he has experienced. Um, what's going on with him there? I mean, this is this is him going to the pagan temple, right? Yeah, that's the that's that Emersonian oversoul, in my opinion. Oh my goodness, it sure is. Yeah, it, uh, let's see. A sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused, whose dwelling is the light of setting suns and the round ocean and the living air and the blue sky and in the mind of man. A motion and a spirit that impels all thinking things, all objects of all thought, and rolls through all things. Yeah, it's it's like yeah. the the and and it's not the only place in the poem where he's he's kind of semi gnostic, but it, it's like the mind of man is connected with the natural world, but not the body. So so the natural world ends yeah. up being an almost non physical place itself. Yeah, yeah. Because because it in, infused in it as infused in all of us is this kind of he doesn't use the word but it's it's an oversoul yeah yeah anyway no that jumped out at me as 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 an interesting thing to uh to go on about well i thought so i've got one more sort of specific question and then we can bat some other ideas around uh as we wrap up i we're, we're we're at an hour i think we can probably go a little bit over but um so his sister the last section of this poem uh, uh, he addresses a friend or a sister. Uh, this is Dorothy, yes? Yes, it is. And what's, uh, so where, where how, how does she play, you know, what's the role that she plays or that her presence plays in the, at the, at the close of this poem? Well, I should, I should say about her that, um, she was probably his best friend in the world. He lived with her at the time he wrote this poem. He was on the mm. walking tour that he was on with her. Uh, mm -hmm. The two of them shared a sensibility. They shared a sensitivity toward nature. And in fact, controversially, some of his descriptions of nature in his poems are very description, uh, very similar to descriptions in her journal. Uh, <laughs> it's not for me to decide whether that counts as stealing or, you know, she had no desire to be a published author herself. I, I don't know. I don't want to I don't want to wade into that. But it is a, it is an argument that people have. Hmm. 
Uh, I think her most important role in this poem has to do with uh, with him reconciling who he is now with who he was then, because mm -hmm. his friendship with her gives him a connection to his past self. He says, mm -hmm. in thy voice, I catch the language of my former heart and read my former pleasures in the shooting lights of thy wild eyes. So I don't know if he's suggesting she hasn't changed, but certainly she seems stable to him in the midst of all the change he's undergone in the last five years. And mm -hmm. so her stability allows him to change without feeling like he's losing himself, which is a very nice thing to say about somebody, yeah. I suppose. She didn't go to France with him, did she? I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah, that's the interesting question to me, you know, that, that occurs to me, too, is I'm wondering whether she, um, was she older or younger? A year younger. You know? Okay. But, but, but she's of an age where she would, could be married, but I, she never married. No, she never married. So, so even more so than I, I wonder whether you're right about the fact that there is lack, you know, a lack of change in her in these intervening years that he is holding on to. But also, to say that somebody else doesn't change, there's something kind of offensive in that, right? It's denying them something <laughs> human, <laughs> right? There's also something really false about that, but yeah. yeah. Right, but um, I mean, the reason he can, he can say that she doesn't change is because he doesn't inhabit her mind and so doesn't yeah. notice all the, way, all the ways that she's changed, doesn't feel cut off from her past self the way that he feels cut off from his. I mean, that's, that's a natural thing. And and at no point in the poem does he actually say that she doesn't change. So I don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to criticize him for something that we're kind of reading into him. Yeah. But I I do think that the other people in our lives because because they're external to us they can kind of help us make sense of who we were and who we are. And I think that's what Dorothy is doing for him mm. in this poem. If you look at this alongside of you know, the much later poem, uh, the Ode Intimations of Immortality. Um, the way that he speaks of her here reminds me of the way that children are spoken of in the other poem. Yeah, um, he's talking to his daughter in that other poem, I yeah, think. But also the way that um, the changes that attend maturity are, uh, are conceived of as impositions of the world. Um, it's not so much that we're, and if, if, if I, if, if this Wordsworth of this poem had any, uh, any ideas that are caught, you know, connected to that later poem, um, perhaps when he looks at himself and says, I've changed so much, um, maybe the way to say it is he feels that he has been changed. Um, that, that those are not necessarily changes that he would have, that, that, that he desired or saw as, as, as coming out of, um, you know, what he would have desired for himself, right? And, and that she is still in some sense connected to what he was before and not unchanged because she's some kind of pristine innocent who can't, but that she's been mm -hmm. preserved from that which changed him. Yeah. And I, I just looked it up. She did not go to France with him. And in fact, they, oh. they had been separated before that. They reunited in 19, 1795. It's very hard for me not oh. to say 1970 instead of 1790. 
a very different Wordsworth that would be. Um, <laughs> I, I so I, you know I'm 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 curious. So the thing that struck me in this last section is the way that he is asking or inviting her to join him in their joint experience in the past and revel in that memory or revel in what that, you know, or, or, or revel in the things around which that memory centers, namely nature and their experience of it. Um, yeah. Thy memory shall uh, be as a dwelling place for sweet sounds. Thy mind shall be a mansion for lovely forms. And, 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 uh, you know, he's certainly calling her memory of their experience together. We stood together, you know, on the banks of this 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 delightful stream. We stood together, um, and I also I I've got underlined here this this solitary walk that uh, he he says uh, you know is is of is is her experience, uh, which led me to wonder whether she had been married. Um, you know, because it, it it sounds to me like he is. Speaking of their parallel paths, but like you said, they were estranged for a while. Um, not estranged, but they were separated for a while. Separated, yeah. It, it wasn't yeah. by choice. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Um, and he's reuniting with her, you know, um, as as someone he seems to be holding on to. Well, um, do we have time to call out another couple passages that you all want to talk about i'll i'll stay silent since uh, i've already thrown one out there uh david yeah uh, the hermits i love the hermits in the first uh, bit I knew <laughs> you you would the love the hermit <laughs> you know it, over time one becomes one's own genre um <laughs> but uh, of all the charlie browns in the world you're the charlie browniest <laughs> I am. Oh, I am. Uh, yes. Yeah, so the, the 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 these pastoral farms, green to the very door, and wreaths of smoke sent up in silence from among the trees, with some uncertain notice, as might seem of vagrant dwellers in the houseless woods, or of some hermit's cave, where by his fire the hermit sits alone. So you know that he uses the word hermit twice. So you know how could I miss that? But. The interesting thing here is that there is no hermit. Uh, there is a monastery, but he's not going to talk about it. <laughs> um, but and and there and but there is no hermit. What he sees are is the smoke coming up from farm farm farmsteads, farm cottages. But he imagines them as hermits' caves, um, and that. Uh, I know, I know that this is part part of a larger way in which he is he is effacing um the 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 encroachment of human civilization on this natural landscape by by making it even more isolated in his imagination but that that use of the imagination to take what is perceived in the landscape and to uh, we've you you know you you use this term before michael and and you know i i like it to to in, he's essentially enchanting the landscape mm -hmm. um yep. by looking at that smoke and saying what if it was not the smoke of the thing i know but what if it was the smoke of the of another thing um which to me david is like the thing that poetry is called to do in the industrial age yeah is to is to re-enchant a landscape that has been disenchanted forcibly disenchanted yeah yeah 
So I, I love that little passage mm. and uh, what he does. It's just this one little moment, but uh, it seems important uh, important to me. Then yeah. uh, one that we've uh, I, I, th- I think we I think we might have uh, alluded to this one, um, but it's around about line. It's it's in the mid middle middle sixties. Um, so, uh, so I dare to hope, line 67, though changed no doubt from what I was first, from what I was when first I came among the hills, when like a row I bounded o'er the mountains by the sides of the deep rivers and the lonely streams, wherever nature led. And that moment when he is bounding like a row o'er the mountains, it's the Song of Songs. Uh-huh except it is nature that is leading him and he is like um he is like the beloved one in the song of songs who is called by you know the called by the lover to go leaping on the mountains and skipping on the hills hmm. um again yeah using this um elusiveness of language and image to um enchant and sanctify i think this this memory Hmm. Yeah, those are the moments that stuck out to me. Yeah, cool. Michael? I'm going to go just a little bit later when he's talking about um, his past self. Uh, He says, The sounding cataract haunted me like a passion. The tall rock, the mountain, and the deep and gloomy wood, their colors and their forms, were then to me an appetite, a feeling and a love that had no need of a remoter charm by thought supplied, nor any interest unborrowed from the eye. That time is past. And all its aching joys are now no more, and all its dizzy raptures. Not for this, faint I, nor mourn, nor murmur. Other gifts have followed. For such loss, I would believe abundant recompense. I I really like this notion that childhood or young adulthood, he's not a child, he's 23, um, is this time when you feel everything and, and when everything kind of burns and you lose that as you get older and, you know, there's something sad about that, but also you get other stuff in return and maybe it's even better uh, than when you felt things so strongly. Well, and he he continues to feel things strongly. It's just a different, it's a different sense, right? He's not fainting. Um, right. He's right. able or to f- recollect it in tranquility. And and I mean, I, I, right. I think that's important because between ni- 1793, there I go again, 1793 and 1798 <laughs> is his entire poetic career. So he meets hmm. Coleridge in 1795. Most of the poems, maybe all of the poems in lyrical ballads are written after 1793. So like hmm. in some ways that younger self wouldn't have even been able to do the things that we think of Wordsworth as doing. Um, and and it's, it's painful to lose that part of yourself, but also it's kind of necessary uh, if you're t- if you're to if you're to grow up, basically, if you're to mature. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Cool. Well, to bring this home, um, given that we're recording this episode in a particularly troubling time for our country and indeed the world, uh, as we are here recording in April of 2020 in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, I thought. We might offer up again, maybe around the horn quickly. Any closing thoughts on on the place of poetry, the place of literature, if you prefer, uh, good literature in general, and, and how it can be helpful to us in times uh, such as these? Um, go ahead, Michael, if you'd like. Well, I mean, among other things, I don't want to make this as a, as a kind of definitive statement about what poetry does in times of trauma. Sure. 
But mm-hmm. among other things, I think of it as doing something akin to what the lands, the humanless landscapes that you've been posting to Facebook, Todd, uh, does, <laughs> yeah. which allows you to leave the house that that uh, COVID nineteen and and the your local government will not allow you to leave. Um, and mm-hmm. and so, to to some extent, when you read Tintern Abbey, you get to walk through these woods that you're not not able to walk through, and which you couldn't anyway because they no longer exist, if indeed they ever did. So I I mm. think I think that's a really you you might call that escapism. I I think it's probably something higher than mere escapism, but mm. I think that's a, that's a thing we all need right now. Awesome, Dave. Yeah, I I I think I would say something very very similar. Um, but mm-hmm. the uh, the gay the, the the idea that poetry is encouraging you to turn back to the resources that you have spent your life gathering, right? Now, now mm-hmm. we are maybe we're maybe maybe I'm not in the din of a of a city, <laughs> but I am in a lonely You're room. In Houston. <laughs> <laughs> um and uh it is it, it's 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 very easy for that to turn to melancholy but uh yeah. something that i think this poem ought to remind us of is the the resources of the the resources even of the self and memory right mm-hmm. um you know it's easy to get caught in the present moment but that's not the only moment that you've been in um mm-hmm. And now, uh, amazingly, miraculously, you are able to even reap from other moments um, things that you did not perceive even at the time. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you, there, there, there is a richness of recalled experience that uh, exceeds even, uh, even the immediate richness in a, in a particular kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I, I wish I could remember where I even got this image from. Is it Spencer? Is it Wordsworth? But it's sort of the difference between gold in the mine and gold minted. Hmm. Um, you know, now is the time to be for for that, that contemplation, that pensiveness, that meditation um, in which you mint some of the gold of your experience. Hmm. And hmm. it's forced upon you. You get to be a hermit. Yeah. Lucky yeah. you. Write something. <laughs> Write something. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Well, I one of the things that I often say to my students in our in our Paideia class, I think rings even more true when we are isolated, uh, in the sense that we are, and that is that that poetry in a particular way, but again, you know, good literature in in general, offers the ability to forge a connection with somebody else's thoughts and uh, observations, reflections, which may be yours or maybe something which is a new experience for you. Uh, but, the, but the key point there is human connection. And, you know, as we are remotely uh, teaching students, um, you know, one of the things we're continuing here at Luther is a weekly tea Wednesday afternoon thing that we've done in the physics department since before I got here. Um, we're doing it online. Um, because the the students need connection, we need connection. I mean, we're here because of them. And um, what 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 reading some good poetry like this can allow you to do is 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 to forge that kind of connection with another human 
uh, soul who has, who has spent the time to craft the work that you're uh, engaged in. So, we are at hour 15. Michael, what uh, I believe you're hosting next week. Uh, what are you all doing? What do I get to uh, see in my podcast feed? Well, my, from that? my friend, uh, Father James Bozeman, who uh, is also a rock star, just released an album. And one of the songs is called Housewife in Versailles. And um, I, I messaged him because I said, hey, is this based on the Sofia Coppola Marie Antoinette movie? And he said it was. And it really made me want to rewatch that movie. So I'm going to make uh, Nathan rewatch it with me. And David has opted out, I think for the first time ever, has opted out of this episode. And I, he watched the trailer. And I asked him what he found so offensive about the trailer. And he provided me with the following list, which I will now read in its entirety. Uh, Ancien Régime Versailles, Decadent Aristocrats, Historical Dramas with Modern Pop Soundtracks, Sex Farce, Archness, Celebrity Culture, The French Revolution, and Kirsten Dunst. So uh, David's not going to be talking about Marie Antoinette, and instead we're going to have his wife, Katie Grubbs, uh, who I think uh, those things appeal to her, David. She actually really likes this movie, so... I do too. So, yay. And, and I've had it for Kirsten Dunst since we were both 12 years old. So, um, <laughs> I'm always up to watch a Kirsten Dunst movie. <laughs> All right. That sounds very good. Well, that'll do it for another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This show is a member podcast of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. If you'd like to give us feedback on our show, please send an email to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or on our webpage at christianhumanist.org. You can also find us on Facebook, uh, and please do give us a rating and review at iTunes. It helps get the word out to other potential listeners. So this has been Todd Pedler on behalf of Michael Farmer and David Grubbs, thanking you for listening and leaving you with the words of Martin Luther, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.